only thing that the market guarantees you as a shot. And you have to satisfy consumer demand, which always changes, and technology changes, and new competitors come in and out, and that type of thing. So there's just no predictability. Welcome to Acton Line, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. In this episode, Dylan Palmen, executive editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality and a research fellow here at the Acton Institute, interviews Dr. Anne Rathbone Bradley about her lecture at Acton University on corporate welfare and inequality. In this conversation, they discuss why the prices of some goods, like education and healthcare, have risen at astronomical rates, while others, such as video games, remain fairly unchanged in price despite monumental improvements in quality and steady inflation over the decades. Also, they examine what happens when companies use government privilege to secure special favors that push would-be competitors out of the market. What can be done about the unjust inequalities created by corporate welfare? You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash actonline. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Acton Line. My name is Dylan Pommen. I'm uh, executive editor of Acton's Journal of Markets Morality and a research fellow at the Acton Institute. I'm joined today by Dr. Anne Rathbone Bradley. Uh, she's vice president of academic affairs at the Fund for American Studies in Washington, D.C., and professor of economics at the Institute of world politics. She's also an affiliate scholar of the Acton Institute. Uh, we're going to be talking about Anne's recent Acton University lecture, recording this now at Acton University, um, on corporate welfare and inequality. So, Anne, welcome to Acton Line. Thank you for having me, Dylan. Pleasure to be here. So, I want to begin. I, I sat in on the lecture and I really enjoyed uh, the QA. So, I'm going to almost begin from the end <laughs> and, and work our way back to the okay. beginning, I think. Um, so, when I was a kid, uh, which this will date me for some listeners as old and for others as young. Uh, when I was a kid, I was a kid in the 90s mostly, um, and I loved video games. I played, you know, Nintendo, Super Nintendo, Nintendo 64. And I remember when there was a high-demand game coming out, it would maybe be like $60, $70. Um, so you'd have to save your allowance, that kind of thing. Um, now I'm a father. I have an 11-year-old. We got him the Nintendo Switch, which is the most recent Nintendo. Uh, it's unimaginably more powerful than any video game system. You know, all the games are, are these gigantic worlds. They, you know, 120 hours of gameplay, these massive epic stories. They have real composers do the music, all this amazing sort of quality. Uh, and there was this high demand, this new Zelda game that came out. Uh, and it was very, very high demand. In fact, it sold in the first three days, I believe, over 20 million copies or something like that. You know, just really like blowing through records. Uh, and it was $70. Um, now, if you compare that to uh, in 2002, I started college uh, and I worked at UPS and I went to Grand Rapids Community College and UPS reimbursed 
uh, $2,500 a year, uh, as long as you got a C or better on your classes. And that completely covered my tuition for three years at community college. Um, and community colleges are, of course, cheaper than universities and, and uh, other private colleges. But price of education has not remained that affordable. Why the big difference? Why is something like a video game, which, you know, they, if you look at it, like the budgets are like movie budgets for some of these games. They pour so many resources into it and then it looks amazing. It's like photorealistic sometimes. Uh, the improvements are just through the roof. Same price, despite inflation. And yet you look at education and not only is it more expensive, it is outpacing inflation by, you know, almost orders of magnitude. Yes, Help help us out. Any anyone like me yeah. listening and and noticing this phenomenon, but not really knowing the economics behind it. Right? How can we explain this? It's a great analogy that you're using. I was wondering where you're going with the video <laughs> game at first. Um, but I, you know, I remember growing up playing video games as well, and it's certainly my experience with video games in the '80s is very different than what my children. I have a 13 year old yeah. and a and a 10 year old, and what they experience is, as you say, just remarkably different in a much more sophisticated mm -hmm. product, right? So it's very hard to compare today's Zelda, or I think my son has the new Harry Potter okay. game, right? Yeah. I, I, there's no comparison between the old kind of Super Mario Brothers, right? right? I mean, it's just like a different good altogether. Um, so we see just radical technological innovation, and I would even say, um, just more accessibility and availability mm -hmm. to everybody. You know, you don't have to be upper middle class to have a video game anymore, and mm -hmm. that's a great thing. Um, and as you pointed out, I mean, with the flip side of this is your ability to go to college um, was different than your parents' ability to go to college, and mm -hmm. this is going to be different than your and my children's ability to go to college. College is becoming increasingly out of reach for the average American, and it's not just the cost of, you know, getting into the building. It's also things like textbooks, and, you know, you can't go to college if you can't afford the textbook. So yeah. it's just becoming increasingly hard. And, and related to that, I think we have a big problem with college attrition. So it's really the highest it's ever been. And this is very um, disruptive for people. So if you think you can make it, but financially you can't, the mm. literature tells us it's far better to not go at all than to go and drop out. So we have these problems. And, and your question is a really pressing one. And I want to try to answer it using kind of the the, the lesson of cronyism or helping us think about, you know, why are some industries just really improving things for us? And why are some necessary parts of the American economy, like education and mm -hmm. also healthcare, just becoming cumbersome and less innovative? Um, and I would say with higher ed, right, we just see a lot of administrative growth. Mm -hmm. um, you're not adding more professors, really, right? But you're yeah. adding a lot of bureaucrats yep. that are checking off different forms and things like this. And so what we tend to see is that in industries that have a lot more regulations already, um, those have less rates of innovation. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's just there's this thing that we – I don't remember if we talked about it in the session, but it, it's called the cost of compliance, right? So you have this, mm -hmm. this code of regulations, and then universities have to spend resources just to comply with the regulations. And the and uh, higher ed is far more regulated than video games, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so the problem is, it, it even if you rewind 25 years ago, it's not like higher ed was categorized by like free markets or something. You know, it was mm -hmm. already regulated, had a lot of government involvement. And so I think it's kind of like a snowball that gains traction and rolls downhill, and it just gets even more bloated, more bureaucratic, and thus more expensive. Yeah. And so you know, our kids have great video games, which is awesome. But I also would like them to have a college education if that's what they're meant to do. Right. And so, you know, you start 
having you have five year olds or three year olds and you're like, how am I going to pay for this? I have to I have to plan for that now. And so the regulation tends to build and beget more regulations. And so you kind of get this complex web um, that's very hard to navigate. And I think the problem with that is that it creates kind of loopholes. Right, where now universities are going to hire very expensive and well-educated lawyers to try to work around the existing regulatory infrastructure to try to make gains from themselves. Um, and to the extent that they can try to use that to kind of block competition, right, mm-hmm. um, they will. And so you're right to say community college is far less expensive, and that's still a great option. Um, but it's also a different good. It's a two-year mm-hmm. degree versus a four-year degree in many cases. And so um, I think it's a story or a lesson for how we need to kind of think about how we can unconstrain these markets. Yeah. So that gets me uh, to a more definitional question since we've now, I think, touched on the, the topic. What is cronyism? How do we define this in, you know, in technical economic terms? How does it work or how does it make things not work, perhaps, is the better question. Um, what do people mean when they talk about cronyism? Is this just kind of a, a social media op-ed, you know, uh, politicized term, or is there actually a, a, a technical economic definition? Yeah, that's a great question and I think important because I, t- I, I sometimes think that think the terms we use can be weaponized and kind of we villainize people. And so just calling somebody a crony could be meaningless <laughs> in the same way, you know, you might call somebody a capitalist and that could mean a good thing to someone and a bad thing to someone. So um, cronyism, in the economics literature, we have historically referred to this as rent seeking, right? Seeking a rent. And ostensibly, there's nothing wrong. I mean, firms try to seek rents all the time. It's the manner in which the rent seeking occurs, which is um, so that the synonym I think is helpful for cronyism is privilege. Privilege that's gotten through manipulating political connections. And that can look like a lot of different things. Um, So we might look at, you know, a subsidy that maybe the farming industry, right, has sought from the farm bill um, and they might get a direct cash payment and that's going to change the allocation of their resources. It could be agitating for protectionism, which we've seen just many, many examples of over history. But it also could be things like... um, you know, non-competitive bidding. And what what we see right now, this is kind of um, present in the military industrial kind of complex, which is to say Lockheed Martin has gotten money for 20 years just related to the war on terror. And they don't, you know, they're just kind of assumed that they're going to submit a new proposal and, and get that um, again in the future. And their goal is a obviously to increase the number, you know, the dollar number that they're going to get. Um, it, it can be even the creation of artificial, what we call in economics, artificial monopolies. So, you know, a natural monopoly might just be this is the first time this product or service has been invented. But as long as we have free entry and exit into the market, that monopoly is not naturally sustainable. Um, but when we construct monopolies by using the laws or regulatory codes to protect insiders kind of against outsiders, then you're you're kind of politically insulating corporate privilege. And so that's the way we can think about cronyism, knowing that it takes different forms. It could be writing a check. It could be changing what price you can charge. It could be saying you're not importing you know, over a certain number of Hondas from Japan. You know, it could right. look like a lot of different things. Yeah. So at one point uh, in, in your lecture, I think it was maybe also in the Q&A, um, I, I thought it was really interesting. You, you talked about occupational licensing, but maybe this would apply to other examples. 
Um, but you mentioned that in particular, not only does cronyism cause uh, inequality, in this case, a very harmful, unjust inequality, but it disproportionately affects especially women. Um, and you also mentioned minorities. But it it strikes me as you'd think this would be like the next big social justice issue yes. in a very positive way and th that it should be. Um, and yeah, it's almost like a story that's just not being told. So why is that the case? What did you mean by that? Can you um, expand on that for us? Sure. Um, and so this is in particular to occupational licensing in the United States. So a, a study came out of a West Virginia policy tank, very helpful and pretty recent, which kind of mapped out the United States. And it looks like at all the different occupational licensing requirements by state. And it indicates that 64 percent of all the occupational licensing laws affect women hmm. and they affect lower income women, which are much more likely to be minorities. Hmm. So this is directly to, I mean, I love the way you phrase the question, which is why is this not, a why are we not very vocal in the, in the right way of thinking about social justice on this issue? Mm -hmm. And so I think part of it is just this, you know, the, the typical story in economics about concentrated benefits and dispersed costs in some way, you know, people who have lower levels of income and are spread out, they don't have an ability to p politically mobilize mm. to get their voices heard. They also can't afford fancy lawyers, you know, that are kind of sitting around on K Street waiting to lobby for them. And so, you know, more powerful corporations have just a better ability to, to drive the narrative, I think, or to just hide this. And so I think it's it's a it's a blessing and a good thing that the Institute for Justice is and you know, really it's mostly, you know, pro bono lawyers there that mm -hmm. are kind of advocating for changing the regulations and giving a voice to people who just don't have the political clout to be heard. Mm. Um, and I think shining a light on this is is helping push back some of these regulations because you can look at a state like Louisiana, which has just, I think it's like 500 hours on average that you have to go to school or that you have to put in to get a license. And so they have very few hair braiders. It's a supply and, you know, supply yeah. issue. Yeah. But then you can go to a state that just, you know, Texas, I think, did away with all their occupational licensing, at least in hair braiding. I'm not sure if it was across the board. And so now you have a lot more hair braiders, right? Yeah. So we talked in the session about if you think about economic mobility as a ladder, right? You you have to get your foot on the bottom rung. Mm -hmm. And of course, we talk about part of the American experiment is that you have a responsibility to be good, but the only way you can be, you know, give it a try and improve your skills is to get in there, to get in the market. And so I think that occupational licensing kind of um, takes that bottom rung and mm -hmm. puts it out of reach for people. And the thing about hair braiding in particular, you just don't need a lot of capital. You need yeah. the talent, which is the most important thing. You don't have to have a building. You can have a kitchen table. You can do it in your basement. Um, it's the skill and just a very few simple tools. Um, moreover, I would say these regulations, they're hard. They're kind of indefensible. We can't, you know, like some, mm -hmm. some regulations we could say, well, you know, maybe you need the health inspector to come to the restaurant because we don't want people to get food poisoning. Fine, mm -hmm. right? Um, maybe that's legitimate. But, I mean, in this case, there's no public safety argument. I mean, they're not cutting hair. They're not putting chemicals on hair. But mm -hmm. in some states, we're requiring them to go to 2,000 hours of cosmetology school. And so this is taking opportunities away from people who, again, are, 
you know, wanting to grow their incomes and provide for their families. So it is a it's very much a social justice issue. Has anyone compared uh, the price of getting your hair braided between states? Because I would expect that to, to correlate. <laughs> Absolutely correlates, right? Because the salon owners, they don't have the ability. So, I, you know, I don't. I'm ignorant of what the average price is for this. Mm. And it probably depends on hair length and all sorts of things. But um, if I can do this in my home, I'm not paying, you know, overhead for a business. I don't have employees. I don't, you know, have different insurance and things like this. So covering my costs is more about covering my time Mm -hmm. um, rather than having all these other fixed costs. And so for the salon owners, they feel that it's unfair because they have all these costs and they might have employees and everything like that. And so the, the, you know, they can't compete if you're charging $50 and they're charging 150 mm-hmm. um, they view it as I suppose unjust in their you know in their minds trying to level the playing field but of course we understand that's not how markets work um, mm. and I think the hardest part about this it's easy to get outraged I hope about occupational licensing that's hurting yeah. you know people at the bottom of the income distribution I don't think we kind of get as angry perhaps about the farm bill, which basically yeah. supports large corporate farmers, right? It's, we're not supporting kind of mom and pop farming like we think we might be. And so, you know, I think we have to be kind of thoughtful about who are the real beneficiaries. Um, but yes, absolutely, the prices are going to be different because it's, you know, and, and that's why they do it. They say, look, I, I, I have to make it harder for them to work because they're going to put me on a business. But that's the only thing markets promise you is that change is nece- you know, is going to happen and you have to keep up. Mm-hmm. It's a hard pill to swallow, I think. So it's interesting to me, and I I'm trying to think, you know, I've been working at Acton for 12 years now, so I, I did not study economics, but I got a pretty good on-the-job education yeah, over the years, did. and I'm executive editor of our journal. Um, but, you know, coming from the outside, I could see someone saying, well, but this is exactly the problem with the market system. It's all about competition. Uh, these people, they they want to compete with the at-home hair braiders. And so, you know, so how would you distinguish between market competition and competition for rents uh, for for rent seeking or you know similarly you know we already mentioned inequality and it was in the title of your your talk um, a lot of people and myself included think there's perfectly acceptable socioeconomic inequality that just right. some occupations are in higher demand than others which means that some people are gonna have higher wages than others that's that just happens that's not necessarily an injustice um, but w- in this case I do think it's unjust so could you talk about how Maybe sometimes the problem is, you know, the same term um, having a, a conditional moral value, um, depending on the context and, and what how it's being how it's occurring. Right. Uh, let me go back to the kind of your initial remarks in this question, which are, you know, what is the difference? I think this is what you're asking. What is the difference between a firm seeking a profit, which who are firms competing against after all? Each other. Yep. Right? So it's always been this salon wants to get more customers than that salon. And Walmart would like you to buy their your garden hose from them rather than Home Depot or something. Mm-hmm. And so in a market economy, you're competing not so much against your consumers. You're trying to woo the consumers. You're competing against other sellers. But the goal of profit maximization, it certainly ensures that over the long run, and I think this is part of a dynamic economy, you're not going to have the same people on top. So there's mm-hmm. been studies that have looked at, for example, like the Ford's, Forbes 500 list, mm-hmm. right? If you have the same company there for 50 years, that should be an anomaly. Like they're so good at this that they just keep reinventing themselves. But that's unusual. I mean, look mm-hmm. at 
for example, singers, like you, somebody like, you know, Madonna or something yeah. like she's big in the eighties. She's reinvented herself a thousand times. You just kind of can't always do that. Right. Um, and so that you kind of just then you do something else or you can't do that anymore. And so I think that firm, the dynamics of firm competition, or maybe what I would say, the vicissitudes of the market, right. Are such that we want protection from them. If you open a business, you don't want to go out of business, but the only thing that the market guarantees you as a shot and you have to satisfy consumer demand, which always changes, and technology changes, and new competitors come in and out, and that type of thing. So there's just no predictability to you know you being successful today from two decades now from now. What does that you know look like for a firm? We don't know. As far as in in kind of um, in political markets, you know, we're talking about. So when we think of like more classic bureaucracies, we're talking about firms who are maximizing. Not firms, sorry, bureaus are maximizing budget. So that's what the TSA does, right? Like they try to get more money every year, and we kind of understand, at least economically, the problems with that. I think where cronyism sits, it's not that we're necessarily creating more TSAs of the world, but we're blurring the profit and loss mechanism. And the, these firms are using kind of political power to the extent that they can to kind of insulate themselves from the vicissitudes of markets. And so um, the, the, the bigger problem with that from an inequality perspective is that you, you kind of um, sanction permanent winners and losers, mm. whereas the market's never going to do that. Who knows if Apple will even be you know, a, a brand name we talk about in 50 years. Right. We just don't know. Mm -hmm. And Apple worries about that, and that, as they should, right? Mm -hmm. um, but there's a difference between kind of taking those worries to the government versus, like, competing with other firms to try to outperform them. Yeah. So another term for taking things to the government, of course, is, is lobbying. Um, uh, and you mentioned Amazon in passing, I think, in your talk. I remember it's a few years ago now, Amazon, they, they wanted to build a headquarters in... Uh, Northern Virginia, which they did succeed at doing, but also they wanted to have the, I don't know if it was a, you know, warehouse or something like that in uh, the New York district that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez represents. And she protested and fought against it. And everybody was, at least the people who like her, uh, was thought she, this was a big win. Um, and I remember thinking that everybody got it backwards uh, because you're from Northern Virginia or you live there now. Yeah. I know, you know, Northern Virginia headquarters means DC lobbying headquarters, right? Um, now, it doesn't necessarily mean that Amazon has pernicious intentions, but you don't really set up a Northern Virginia headquarters if you don't want to be near DC, <laughs> That's right? right? That's the whole point. So I'm curious if you could talk about lobbying in general. And then you did actually mention that there are good forms of lobbying. And I think it's something that I'm, I'm very sympathetic with the case you made. I, I'm, uh, you know, sympathetic to public choice um, and all of that. But but it is important to note that, like, there's a reason why lobbying is a thing. Like, mm -hmm. we we've had 250 years now in this country. We could have made it illegal, but there's a reason we didn't. So what is it? What what is it supposed to be for, and then what does it actually? You know, where does the problem come in? Yes. So and and, and I think that I'll try to. Um, bring a couple of ideas, I think, in here that are necessary to answer your question. So just from a public choice or kind of thinking about politics as a form of exchange, right? I think lobbying fits into that reasonably, which is that, you know, the bureaucrats or, excuse me, the politicians who are, might have to vote on a change in real estate law or 
healthcare or climate change. They don't know. Politicians don't just know everything about every bill. And so lobbying can serve the purpose of providing information. And so it can have a purpose. And I think what the real enemy is here and why lobbying has kind of morphed into cronyism. And I do try to make that point in the talk. Um, so thank you for bringing it up, which is that not all lobbying is cronyism, but mm -hmm. all cronyism invo involves lobbying. So okay. we have to parse that out yep. um, and try to understand, you know, there's like, for example, Microsoft in the 90s said, you know, everybody has a presence in Washington and we don't. Right. We didn't know we needed to do this. So, mm. you know, part of it is just everybody's doing it and you need to have a presence, too. And that doesn't necessarily mean you're doing bad things or trying to get favors. Um, but I think what change has changed over time is the precedent, which is to say most lobbying organizations exist not really just to provide information, but because the size and the scope of government has grown really so much over the last hundred years – this is where you go, because if you don't go somebody, it's a fixed pie, right? Somebody else is going to get the benefits, some other, you know, kind of player in your industry. And so you have to be there. If you don't show up, you're certainly not going to get anything. And you might have things that run against your industry. So I think it is important to say not all lobbying is necessarily negative. And what we see in D.C. now are there's some kind of anti-lobbying lobbying, right, yeah. which is that you're saying, stop, and I, I mentioned that in the talk. Sometimes the solutions to these problems are at least very easy on paper, which is just stop what you're doing. Stop get cutting checks to big corporate farms. You know, stop telling people they can't buy raw milk. I mean, like the market actually has a good way of sorting out how people are going to get good raw milk versus, you know, bad raw milk or whatever. Um, and the bureaucrat, I think it's in some ways unfair what we're asking politicians and bureaucrats to do as we kind of weave this web of – regulatory overreach, which is we're asking people to make impossible decisions that they don't know anything about. And so, you know, part of lobbying is just information sharing and the details of an industry, which, again, no bureaucrat or politician necessarily should be expected or we should not think that they're going to know that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's not all terrible, right? It's mm. just where is it going now? So I took a class in graduate school from Gordon Tulloch, which okay. was an yeah. amazing experience. Yeah. And um, he just kind of threw out insults at us. And like it was a great <laughs> class. So great. He was kind of like a, lov a lovable curmudgeon. And he said – he gave this statistic at the time, which is there was more restaurants in D.C. per capita than anywhere – in the world, and it's because there's a lot of whining and dining that goes along with yeah. lobbying. So, you know, that was his his yeah. comment. I didn't empirically verify whether that's true or not. But, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of things that I guess go along with the decision to woo politicians. So your Amazon example is, of course, you know, I watched mm -hmm. that happen. And right. so now we have Amazon in Arlington, which means, yes, we have more jobs, but we also have more traffic. And mm -hmm. certainly Amazon, you know, knows full well that being close to Washington gives them Easy, easy access um, to those politicians, and they're going to need them at some point. Right. Um, all right. So this question might sound a little strange to our listeners, but I think you'll know what I'm asking about. Um, this is an age-old, ancient question. What hath Mick Jagger to do with James Buchanan? <laughs> yes. So this is what I talked about in the beginning of my um, in the beginning of my presentation. I showed a picture of the Rolling Stones with a classic title, "You Can't Always Get What You Want," right? And so the reason I I I lead with that, and then I talk about public choice is. Um, Peter Betke, who's also a friend of Act, the Acton Institute, and he was my professor in graduate school, he said 
all the time to us that economics puts constraints on our utopias. Any utopia, right? So if you're a free market person and you run around saying markets are going to save everything, you're wrong, right? And if you're a kind of a big government person and you think just giving government the power to fix everything, you're wrong, right? So we can't get the utopia. So public choice kind of brings that kind of quote, you can't always get what you want, and really helps us understand that even when we need the government, let's say we can make arguments public, you know, um, public defense or public goods in general, um, national defense, the government is also going to fail. Markets fail. Governments fail. And so Jim Buchanan helps us understand not only that markets are going to err because they're full of human beings, they don't have perfect knowledge, but that the incentives that politicians and bureaucrats face are different than the incentives that a and even an Amazon with lots of market power, you could say, they still have to respond to consumers. And when they stop doing that, we actually want them to go either go away or get better. Um, and so I think Buchanan's insights in terms of public choice, he talked about politics um, as or he talks about public choice as politics without romance. Right. So we're we're taking off the rose colored glasses that we can just find these great, smart full of integrity um, types of people and put them in the halls of political power and then we're just going to get these good outcomes, right? But it's, it's a lot more messy. And so once you open up an industry to government intervention in some way, um, you're going to have to deal with the fact that there's a natural now propensity for that to grow. Yeah. And so constraints really matter um, when we think about political markets. And in a different way, it's not that constraints don't matter in – Economic markets, they do, but it's different. It's it's a different mechanism. It's profit and loss, right? They're always trying to avoid those losses, and that kind of serves to discipline. So, another way of framing it that Buchanan um, uses is that public choice is a theory of government failure. You mentioned that uh, in passing, uh, and he he kind of talks about it in terms analogous to the theory of market failure. Uh, which is usually used as a justification for government intervention. So um, an example, and not everyone will necessarily agree, but one ex- it, usually it centers around issues of elasticity in, with market failure. So something like uh, a diabetic always needs insulin no matter what the price, right? So that you might have a case there to say, well, maybe there should be some government subsidy or government provided health care, whatever, um, that would be the argument, right? Um, so how does that work the other way? What is what is government failure uh, from a public choice perspective? Um, how does it work? And, you know, what, what would be the analogous sort of solution? Is this the analogous solution in the market or is it other sectors of society or, you know, yeah. what is the theory? Um, how does it go? That's a great question. And I think, you know, thinking about healthcare and things like this. So, you know, I think the insulin or an EpiPen, these types of, right, if you need insulin, you will die without it. If you need an EpiPen in an emergency, you need it or you'll die without it. And so that makes us rightly nervous about the provision. What is, what is going to be the institutional context of the provision of those resources, because we want to make sure as many, it's it's highly accessible to people, both in terms of quantity, but also price. Um, and so one argument is we can use government potentially to say, well, we're going to cap the price, or we could use government in other ways. We could say, well, let's just subsidize insulin production. You're going to get a lot more insulin, right? And then it's just like everywhere. It's in CVS. And, you know, so, but there could be problems with both of that, because I think one of the problems that we always have to face if we're going to ask the government to adjudicate these kind of resource allocation questions is how are they going to decide? You don't want too much insulin, because then 
it's wasted. And actually, insulin only has a 28-day, I think, um, lifespan, you know, maybe more if it's refrigerated. But anyway, um, you just, just throw it away. But then you, you don't want to have, you know, a problem where you can't get it at all. So what is the right amount. Um, so the government could certainly, I, I would argue, you know, the best way for government to help is to actually deregulate or kind of walk back on some of them. I'm not saying, you know, we should just like have people selling insulin out of their basements or something where, you know, there's no oversight or anything that's call anything insulin because you could go, you could see that as an, as an outcome. And that would also be bad. Um, but I think government doesn't know what to do. And so, again, it's back to my point of, I think sometimes we ask policymakers to do things that are impossible, and then we get upset with the outcomes we get. So, you know, we talk about, you know, with the FDA, for example, they can work, and and historically what they've done is they've provided us with too much safety, right? It's like there's too much safety. There's, uh, we're too safe from, from new cutting edge drugs. And in the meantime, people die, And so you have to kind of avoid type 1 and type 2 errors, right? Like not unleashing bad drugs, harmful drugs on the market, but also not withholding good drugs from the market. And so I think simple, transparent regulations where they're appropriate is the way to go rather than, you know, kind of the problem with government activity, too, is it tends to be one size fits all because the FDA can't, you know, create, cultivate all these special exemptions for every drug or something like that. And so um, sometimes I think the answer is just simplifying what the regulatory code would be. And I would argue that sometimes it's just, do we need the government to be the regulator? And I think the answer might be different depending on the industry. But what you absolutely don't want is somebody capitalizing on the insulin market and saying, well, now I'm in a monopoly. Mm -hmm. But that's actually not what you tend to find. I mean, I would argue that if you look at the the big problems, what we call big pharma, Mm -hmm. it's, you know, okay, the patent is an example. This is is given to uh, foster innovation Mm -hmm. that protects those ideas and the R&D. And then what you really see going on in big pharma right now is lots of very smart scientists who are also lawyers who now just try to petition for the extension of the life of the patent. Yeah. Right? So you kind of are trying to protect the monopoly price forever. And Mm -hmm. this hurts people Mm -hmm. who need those drugs. I mean, imagine if we couldn't go, you know, to a grocery store right now and buy Advil. Right. I mean... Yeah. That's an that's an amazing thing that we can buy it for almost pennies per pill, mm-hmm. um, but that's because it's you know kind of satisfied that patent process and now it's available. So I think the problem is you can make an argument that maybe you need some regulations, but then when you open the door for the regulations, you open the door for the cronius to come in and say, now I'm going to manipulate this process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in terms of um, you know making things too safe, uh, I remember Paul Hain in his essay uh, our. Economist basically immoral says, you know, we can always make airline travel safer if we required planes to taxi from one city to the other. That's but we'd, right. we'd probably kill, you know, a few hundred more people a year because they'd be driving instead. And That's right. driving is more dangerous than flying. Um, so there there are limits and, and they make people uncomfortable because they do. You can't always get what you want, right? They do. Um, so there's another side to uh, which you touched on a little bit um, to, to public choice, and that's the the constitutional constraints. Um, and that's a side that I, I, I once I find very fascinating. I, I think intuitively right in that as long as you have a real working constitution that is respected within the courts and things like that, it does place real constraints on on 
people in power. Um, you know, Donald Trump, for example, famously wanted to ban Muslims from coming to the country, and he tried with several executive orders, and they were all struck down by the Supreme Court, um, thereby discovering that the president is not the most powerful man in the, in the country, but the Supreme Court is. So we we have instances like that where even today it's still kind of working. I always wonder, though, at least with the U.S. Constitution, it's not as if we're going to have a constitutional con- convention anytime soon. We might never in my lifetime. I don't know. Um, uh, we, have, we have 28 amendments, right? Um, but uh, you never know. But there is there is a smaller level, and I, I've tried to point this out to people. Um, local governments, state governments, a little less so, though, frankly, I get tired of how many times I see a constitutional amendment on the ballot for a, for a Michigan where I live. I don't think that's how you're supposed to amend constitutions. Um, so it's almost too easy to, uh, to amend. But there, there are opportunities at different levels. And I think it's important to, to think about the fact that there's cronyism at different levels as well. So you mentioned the, the occupational licensing is largely a state level issue. I mean, you can have cronyism at the, the neighborhood association level, right? Um, so... I guess I, I'm trying to get you to talk a little bit more about the the more localized because it's easy to say, well, we need more limited government. But for some people, that just means more local government. But local government can be just as cro- be cronyistic, maybe even worse in some cases uh, than national. So that's not quite the same thing. So uh, if you can think of more, more instances or examples on that more local and state level, but then also what what sort of constitutional constraints did Buchanan and Tele? propose or would you propose um, on those more feasible levels where, where okay, yes, we're not going to have a constitutional convention for the U.S. Constitution in our lifetimes, maybe. You know, we, it's very unlikely. And it's very unlikely if we did, the public choice economists would be having their way. Right, <laughs> you know, right, that's right, the other right. side of it, right? Yeah. Uh, we don't want to, as you mentioned, no one should be utopian. Um, but on the, the more local level, and then I, I guess the one last thing is I, I've tried to get people to think in terms of uh, church politics without romance um, oh. and that churches have constitutions yes. one way or another, whether written or functional. Um, and they're far easier to, to try to put these principles into practice. So, so what are some ways to kind of mitigate that rent seeking behavior through constitutional constraints? Those are all such great questions. Uh, so let me t- try to, to address the kind of uh, what are more some local examples. And I love your example of HOAs. So I think, you know, this is kind of interesting because when you think about I mean, I, I, I don't know how Michigan kind of works with HOAs, but in Loudoun County, where I live, which is a lot of new houses, so the two big neighborhoods, very, it seems to me, powerful HOAs. And on some level, this is just a, it's kind of a neat public choice experiment because I can read the entire covenants before I buy my house. But guess what? Most of us don't do that because yeah. it's like, okay, I think I know what's in there. Mm-hmm. And then it comes time to put out your your Christmas decorations and, you know, your neighbor's complaining about you or something. And you're like, oh, I, I didn't really know I was violating a rule. And so I think that they can um, be good examples of smaller groups of people that are trying to establish um, endogenous rules to kind of small g govern the behavior of people in the neighborhood. Uh, and so that that's kind of the most local that you you might be able to get. Um, but I think that it can go, I mean, it can, all the public choice worries matter there too, right? Which is, you know, what does it take for me to kind of influence an HOA board member um, to al- allow, you know, an amendment to a rule or a new rule? Because I, I want to kind of stop somebody from doing something. So an example that I think 
from my own neighborhood that fits nicely into the cronyism story is on our street, there was a woman who had a daycare in her house. And I mean, she probably had four kids. It's mm-hmm. not huge. And all the surrounding neighbors, she's at the kind of bottom of the cul-de-sac, um, they went to the HOA because they said there's too much traffic on our street, which is crazy because I could have my brother and his family over and live in the basement for a month. Yeah. And we'd bring the, the same number of people in, mm-hmm. um, but nobody would complain about that. So it's not even – I don't think it was about the traffic. I think it was about I don't want you doing this next to my house. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to use the power of the HOA. And so sure enough, the HOA get the, all these people mm-hmm. on board, and they now change the rules. So mm-hmm. you know, it's it, it's it's like micro-cronyism maybe, yeah. right, where it's just yeah. like I'm an influence the person who has the power, and I'm going to try to change the rules. So what would be canon and Tulloch? And, you know, it's it's the rules of the game that matter the most in politics. They would say that in markets, too. It's just harder to come up with binding rules because you have to ask the people that are in charge at the moment to change the rules. Um, they can have political will behind that. But it's kind of the fox is guarding the hen house is kind of the perpetual public choice problem, right? So I think one thing that we have to, and maybe this is so important in the context of Acton and Acton University, right, which is virtue, the virtues that people hold, the values that they espouse matter for what they're going to do. And so you can't just say, you know, we're going we're gonna to be democratic and have a constitution in a world where people don't trust their government. So a big example of that is like our efforts in Afghanistan over the past 20 years. It's not really that surprising that that didn't work out because in Afghanistan, the government has been the biggest violent predator for thousands of years. Democracy is actually about trusting your government when there's a disagreement. So the endogenous social trust has to come first which I think requires markets and civil society, as you mentioned, all these things. And so that is going to precede having a robust constitution, right? And so your point, I think, is very well taken, which is that the U.S. Constitution kind of works. I don't. I think that it's broken to some extent, right? But it has been fairly durable. Um, and I think part of the idea behind that is that the Constitution, and I think Chris Coyne, um, my colleague at George Mason has written on this and says this well. He says, you know, the Constitution has worked well over a long period of time because it was a codification of values that people already had rather than an imposition of values. And so to have, whether it's your HOA in my neighborhood and what we're going to agree on and what we're going to think is acceptable behavior is going to determine all participation in that HOA, right, from the board to the, you know, just the citizen. And that you can, that idea percolates up into the, you know, federal constitution. And so I think the rules of the game matter a lot. And so I think what Buchanan and Tulloch would want us to think about is how do you have binding constraints? So your example about Trump and, you know, Mm -hmm. we live in a world of presidency by executive Mm -hmm. order, which should terrify all of us, right? right? Because sometimes it gets stopped Mm -hmm. in the example and sometimes it doesn't. Mm -hmm. And so to have a system of federalism and separation of power, this matters a lot for to mitigate power. And so to the extent that that gets eroded over time, I think public choice concerns become, you know, more often realized. Um, And so different elements of the economy and the political system get co-opted by powerful people. And of course, that's what we always want to avoid. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, I think there's, there's probably still some people wondering, well, how do we get here? And I don't think this is the whole story, but it's certainly part of it. Um, you mentioned um, Robert Higgs, um, Crisis in Leviathan. Um, 
and and you mentioned three recent crises. Uh, so we had the um, I don't remember the first one was now I think about it. maybe it was nine eleven nine eleven and then the financial crisis in two thousand eight and then most recently the COVID nineteen crisis um, and and pandemic. And, you know, recently, I believe it was the CDC only this year said, okay, by the way, pandemic's done, you know, whatever, but like everything's basically functionally, we're not in pandemic mode anymore. Um, in fact, I, I, I feel a little bad because I, I do take very seriously the massive unimaginable loss of life that happened in the pandemic. And we, we shouldn't joke about it, but uh, someone young and healthy who will be fine, I know recently got COVID. I was like, really? In, in 2023? Like you got, you know, it almost feels like we're, that we're beyond real? that. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, um, so are we beyond that though? Right. Like just because, okay, now we don't, we're not in lockdowns anymore. You yeah. know, nobody's uh, putting up mask requirements or at least, at least in Michigan, as far as <laughs> you might people, be some states, right. but yeah, for the most part, not putting up, you know, you can't shop here if you don't have a mask on that sort of stuff, uh, which, you know, they're right to do, but that's a whole different, uh, question. Um, have we gone back to normal? Um, you know, what, what, what would Higgs say about, uh, what we should expect and, and really what the data shows in terms of, uh, the growth of government uh, in response to a crisis? Yeah, this is a great question. I think COVID certainly is an important way that we can talk about H Higgs and his theory. So he, in his book, Crisis and Leviathan, I think articulates well what he calls the ratchet theory. Um, and so the argument is that even before the crisis, you just have a natural increase in the growth rate of government. Um, but during the crisis, the spending goes way, way up, right? You saw this at 9-11, financial crisis, COVID, just to name a few. Um, but World War would do this, you know, any, any of these types of things. And so during the crisis, you have that continued elevated spending. But what he says, and he is empirically proven to be right, is that you never go back down to the pre-crisis levels of spending. So we institutionalize these things. So after 9-11, it's just so clear. You know, we, we had a presence in Afghanistan for 20 years. We have the TSA, Department of Homeland Security, and all the things that that entails and requires. It's a lot more government. Um, now, you know, just as an aside, I think an important economic question is, is that going to help us get less terrorism? Yeah. So we shouldn't like just punt on it, right? right I mean, right, right. I'm skeptical of these things, but I still think we have to ask the economic question. You have to make planes safer. Mm -hmm. We should try not to have terrorists running around. Like, how do we do that? Those are really important questions. Um, COVID is a little bit different. Um, it's a different type of crisis. Mm -hmm. But I think it it remains, the principle remains the same. So I think, as you said, you know, I haven't put on a mask in a pretty long time. Um, I haven't had been required to. Um, so we are, I think, in some ways back to, right, we're in person here. Um, we're back to normal in some ways. But I wonder, you know, we're going to have to continue to look at the numbers to see where the ratchet effect. I mean, I think it's very predictable. We'll see that, right, which is increased spending in different areas, perhaps in healthcare, perhaps in, I mean, we could, I could see perpetual boosters, Right. So who is this going to benefit? This is going to benefit pharmaceutical companies because they have, you know, kind of maybe a subsidy to just kind of continue to develop vaccines, even if we don't need them. Right. Mm -hmm. and, I'm, and I'm not anti-vaccine. I'm just yeah, saying yeah, maybe right. we don't need them every six months forever. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so the durability and the, the lingering 
of the effects of a crisis are felt long after the immediate crisis is over. Um, and because, you know, look, in the short term, people, there were people who did well under COVID, which is a very harrowing thing to think about. As you mentioned, many people died. And what I find so tragic is that people died alone in a hospital because we said, you can't go see your family. That is criminal to me. Um, so anyway, there, there's real problems that aren't even economically measurable. Like, how do we measure that? You know, the, the cost that, that, you know, psychic cost that puts on people. I think that's, that's tough. Um, I also think COVID has these kind of um, surreptitious effects of we judged each other a lot, right? Yeah. And these were on yeah. ideological lines. Um, who was mm-hmm. wearing a mask? Who was suspicious? And mm-hmm. just because you're suspicious of wearing a mask does not mean you know, you hate humans or something. And so that I think might have some lasting effects that, again, are not necessarily economic or Mm -hmm. economically measurable, but um, problematic. Mm -hmm. Um, So Rahm Emanuel, well, Winston Churchill actually said, you know, never waste a crisis. Um, And Rahm Emanuel in the financial crisis kind of reiterated that because he said it gives us opportunity to do things we wouldn't have done before. Hmm. And so I think, you know, it's not that all politicians are evil that I don't think that's the lesson at all of public choice. Just politicians are human. Mm -hmm. Bureaucrats are human. And so it's a zero sum game they're playing with one party wins. It's like a football game. The other party loses. And so it is it is a race to to control the pie. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the stakes are very, very high. And so exacerbating a crisis is naturally, um, it's a natural reaction, whether it's, you know, corporate entities that want to benefit from it or politicians who want to kind of acquire more power because of the crisis. All right. So I want to end on a question. Uh, You mentioned early on in your presentation, you outlined kind of some of the principles of public choice. Um, One of them is the kind of the the rational choice theory of human behavior, uh, which I tend to think is often misunderstood by outsiders and actually even perhaps by some Economists who Insiders. criticize it. <laughs> yes. Nevertheless, I have read some of their works, and sometimes they they have some insightful things to say. So, someone like um, it was Robert Frank uh, back in the '80s. He was a student of Thomas Schelling. Uh, in this book, Passions Within Reason, and he talks about how you would expect people not to even vote at all because you know, except people do. Um, and he had a, a reason. He had an explanation for that, and I think his explanation is actually interesting and somewhat compelling, even though I think his criticism of the rational choice theory is a little misplaced. But but I'm curious, how do you answer that question? Why do people vote? Why do, they, why do, why do people do things uh, that don't quite fit uh, with what we might what we expect? Think they would yeah, because um, the rational choice theory it does pan out in most cases, but there are some exceptions like that. In fact, voting seems to have become more popular, right? Mm-hmm. It used to be less than half of people voted on a, on a national election. Now it's more than half. The majority of people vote in, in at least the national elections every four years. Um, do you have a theory? <laughs> what's, what's your theory? And then, and then if you have any parting, you know, kind of advice to just, you know, so somewhat unrelated, but any parting advice to the common person listening to this saying, okay, I think I understand this more, but what do I do about it? What do it? I do you know? with it? Right. Yeah. So I love this question and I am one of the people who is kind of critical of the like homo economicus model, right? Like we are these robots who can perfectly know all of our trade-offs in advance and have these well-defined utility 
curves that we maximize. I mean, that's not how people behave, right? But we do do we do our best to maximize our what we think our expected benefits are going to be versus the cost, expected costs. And so I think the rational choice model holds really well. I agree with you. Um, so much literature on you know crime, Gary Becker, right? Um, the economics of crime. Um, my own interest in the economics of terrorism is really rests on it. Like these guys aren't crazy. They're actually very calculating and shrewd, and that's the problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if they were terrible at terrorism, we wouldn't be worried about it. It's actually that they're good <laughs> right, at terrorism right. that's the problem, you know? Yeah. So why do people vote? How do we take that and say, okay, why do people vote? I actually think it doesn't defy rational choice. I think it, it's, it's that we think people are voting. So when economists write this stuff, they say, well, your vote will never be de- decisive. And so when I tell my students that, they say, well, like, what about Florida in whatever year? You yeah, know? yeah, and yeah. It was like within 100 votes. And, and so my economic, you know, kind of response curmudgeonly economic response as well that still doesn't matter. You know, it's like matters within 100, but it still doesn't really matter. Um, But that's not why people vote. I really don't think it's why they Mm -hmm. vote. I think people vote because they love their country and they think Mm -hmm. that it's important. I think that, you know, a civics education teaches you that it's a way to be a good citizen. Now, we can argue whether that's an effective way to be a good citizen. (laughs) And that's a different topic. But I think what matters is what people believe. Their perceived realities matter a lot. Um, And you're right that we're seeing more people vote, you know, and I think one part of that is politics is increasingly in some ways vicious and polarized and we're kind of we're living in a populist reality. And so, you know, in when I was growing up, it's like some people would put the I'm a Republican or, you know, whatever bumper sticker on their car. And now people's cars are too nice. So most people (laughs) don't do that. But like they have the yard signs and, you know, it's, it's a way to signal this is who I'm with. Mm-hmm. And if you're with me, then we're together. And I actually don't know that that's a good thing. So I think voting yeah. is a way to signal lots of things. My affiliation, my pride for my country, I care about my community. Um, uh, my friend will vote and then she brings her kids with her and they each get a sticker that says mm-hmm. future voter. So it's <laughs> like she's saying to the world, I'm raising my kids right. They're going to vote later. You know, mm-hmm. So it almost doesn't matter that your vote is indecisive because I think people are voting on different margins. Mm -hmm. Um, And so public choice can help us understand that because you're right. Economists look at it and they're like, why is anybody getting out of bed? (laughs) You know, I mean, my husband will say, I don't know. You know, if the traffic is long, we'll see. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like those kind of adjustments. And I think most people would say if I had to wait five hours, I might not do it. Right. At some point, it becomes unreasonable for anybody. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that's, you know, economics can kind of help us understand that. Um, As far as parting thoughts, I mean, what would I say to all of this? I think one summary statement about cronyism is that it's both obvious but difficult because I think the the answer to cronyism is reducing government size. That is – if you're kind of a limited government person, so this is like music to your Mm -hmm. ears maybe, but – Getting that is a is a challenge. Mm. And so I would say the way people, I think, should feel encouraged and also empowered to do something is not to say I have to save the world from cronyism because we can't do that. But on the margin in my state or in my community, how can we do this? Right. How can we think about governance? How can we think about things like occupational licensing and how can we sometimes it's just shining a light on something that people aren't talking about, and we can be a voice for that. And the other part is I just think if, the, if people hear this and they're interested in public choice, 
read more about it, you yeah. know? Um, maybe you don't start with a calculus of a consent. <laughs> no. yeah. um, but, I, you know, you can listen to um, podcasts. You can go to EconLib where there's lots of short articles um, that just help explain some of the phenomenon, you know, that public choice economists think about. And when you read those things, you say, oh, yeah. You know, I this is just articulated in a way that I already understood, but it's just kind of defining it for me and putting um, some foundations around it so that I can understand it. So I think just always learning more about these phenomena can help us maybe be better citizens. Great. Anne, thank you so much for being with us on Active Line. Thank you, Dylan. It was so fun. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at actin.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Eric Combs.